Turn in your Bible this morning to Revelation 20. Revelation 20. Last week we began this chapter. We talked about the millennium, the kingdom reign of Christ. And we saw that his kingdom began in his ministry here on earth. The initial victory over Satan was his resistance to Satan's temptation. The legal victory was in Jesus' death and resurrection. The coronation of Jesus as king is in his ascension to the throne after the resurrection. And the sign that his kingdom is established is when the old covenant era comes to an end in the judgment that Jesus sends on Jerusalem from his heavenly throne. So now the kingdom of Christ is established and it is growing slowly like a mustard seed growing into a great plant, or yeast slowly working its way through a lump of dough, or like the stone in Daniel's vision that over time becomes a great mountain filling the whole earth. Today we're going to look at verses 4 through 6 of Revelation 20, and here we'll find a description of who is reigning with Christ during his kingdom. And we'll see that they are the ones who have come to life, some kind of resurrection. And it can be a tricky passage, so we'll do our best to clarify it so that we hear the message John is giving us in Revelation 20, verses 4 through 6. I'll read, and I'll begin with the verses that we saw last week. Revelation 20, I'll start reading in verse 1. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and threw him into the pit, and shut it and sealed it over him, so that he might not deceive the nations any longer, until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. All right, so what are we seeing here? We have thrones, and we have those sitting on them that have authority. We have resurrected souls that are reigning with Christ. We have mention of another future resurrection after the thousand years. And we have a description of the blessing of sharing in the first resurrection. This can be a very confusing text, and there are some parts of it that I'm not entirely sure of myself. But I'm going to do my best to explain what I believe John's telling us in these verses. Let me try to give some basic explanations first that will help us before we look at the details of the text. And hopefully that will help us to make sense of these verses. We have two different resurrections mentioned here. One before or during the reign of Christ and one after. And I think we're supposed to understand these two resurrections as having a different nature. Or another way to put it is this. 
they are two stages of resurrection. Step away from this text for a moment and just think about how the Bible talks about resurrection. We know that there will be a day when our physical bodies will be raised from death to life. They'll be changed, will become immortal. Sin will be done away with. And as an example of that physical resurrection, we have the resurrection of Jesus. Jesus was raised in a glorified, immortal, physical body. His old physical body was transformed. That's why we celebrate the empty tomb on Easter. It really is his physical body. Jesus' old physical body was raised and transformed. And one day, in the future, we will be too. In fact, Paul tells us that we can look at Jesus' resurrection as an example of what will happen to us. In 1 Corinthians 15, verse 20, Paul says this, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. So when Paul calls Jesus firstfruits, he's comparing the resurrection to a harvest. The very first plant that pops up out of the dirt serves as a promise of more to come. At least it's supposed to. One of our kids is in the middle of one of those bean plant experiments right now, where you put the dirt in the bean plants and you put it up on the windowsill, and you're supposed to compare if there's three in this one and 15 in this one, how do they grow differently? And unfortunately, all we've got is one plant that's like this tall, but that's it. That's the exception. Normally, in a harvest, the first one that pops up, when the first things start coming out of the ground, that's a promise that there's more to come, right? The rest of the harvest. So according to Paul, the resurrection, he's got the first fruits, Jesus is the first fruits, and believers are the rest of the harvest, okay? So Jesus' resurrection is a promise that all of those who belong to him will eventually pop up out of the dirt too. Okay? And Paul clarifies the order. In 1 Corinthians 15, verse 23, he says, Each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. So according to Paul, the resurrection of those who belong to Christ, Christians, will be at the second coming. And of course, then, that raises questions about our text in Revelation 20. When John talks about those sitting on the thrones... We remember that a couple of times earlier in the book, we saw 24 elders sitting on thrones, and they're the, one, the only ones that are described that way in the whole book. And those 24 elders are described in the language of priests, and they represent the church. So we, the church, are described by Peter as a royal priesthood. But in Revelation, the priests, those who are on the thrones, the church, are described as already judging on thrones during the reign of Christ. And then John says that the souls of those beheaded for the testimony of Jesus came to life and reigned with Christ for the thousand years. So that sounds like resurrection. But what about what Paul said? That those who belong to Christ will be raised at Jesus' second coming. Are Paul and John confused? Are they disagreeing? 
And then John tells us that not everyone is raised at that time because he goes on in verse 5 to say that the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. So it seems like John is dividing the resurrection of believers into two parts, where Paul talked about them all being raised at the same time. And then John makes the distinction even clearer. He says that this is the first resurrection. So there's a first resurrection and a second resurrection. And the ones who share in the first resurrection will be priests of God and Christ and will reign with him for the thousand years. So how do we square what John is saying with what the other New Testament writers seem to say? Well, here's what I think is the key to understanding this dilemma. The New Testament writers speak of salvation in terms of a spiritual resurrection. When you're saved by Christ, you're given new life. You used to be dead in your trespasses and sins, but now God has made you alive. You have been raised up with Christ. Let's look at just one place where the New Testament talks this way. Ephesians 2, 4-6. God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you've been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Now, there are other passages we could go to as well, but just look at what we have here. We were dead. God made us alive. Past tense. That happened at salvation. Okay? Notice the phrase, by grace you've been saved, is equal to made us alive. In what Paul's saying, those are saying the same thing. Spiritually coming back to life. God made us alive with Christ. God raised us up with him, and God seated us with him in the heavenly places. Past tense. If you're a believer, that has already happened to you. So there's some sense in which we've already been raised, and have already been seated on thrones with Christ in the heavenly places. And if you put Revelation 20 in front of Paul. If, if you could take what John wrote and take it back to the Apostle Paul and you said, Paul, read this. Read Revelation 20. What do you think of what John wrote here? I think Paul would say, yeah, exactly. That's what I was saying. We have been raised spiritually already. We are ruling and reigning with him already. That's why we've been seated on thrones with Christ. And one day, at his second coming, we will be raised physically. Paul and John are in perfect agreement. They're just speaking about the resurrection slightly differently. When Paul divides the resurrection into two parts, both parts are physical. When he says in 1 Corinthians 15, that Jesus has been raised, and then we will be raised. It's one harvest, both parts physical. Jesus has been raised, we will be raised. Okay? The first fruits and the rest of the harvest. But when John divides the resurrection into two parts, he's dividing it between spiritual and physical. So, 
our spiritual resurrection has already happened. And our physical resurrection will happen when Jesus returns. He's, he tells us that what he sees are the souls, not the bodies, of those who are raised. Because he's talking about spiritual resurrection. But ultimately, Paul and John are saying the same thing. Now, with that in our mind, let's look at these three verses this morning in Revelation 20. In verse 4, we have the 24 elders. As we've already noted, that's priest language. These are priests. They're carrying out a ruling, judging function. And as Peter has said, we, the church, are a royal priesthood, kings and priests. So there's some sense in which God has given the church authority to judge. In Matthew 19, Jesus is talking to his disciples, and he says this. He says, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. What is Jesus saying? Well, it helps to understand the words here. When your Bible says new world, doesn't that sound like we're talking about something future? This is another place where the translators are trying to be helpful, but they're actually muddying the waters a little bit. The word is literally regeneration, or new birth. So, it, what, what, it's, what Jesus is saying is truly, I say to you, in the new birth, okay, what he's referring to here is the same thing that John is referring to in Revelation 20. You've been raised with Christ. Seated with him in the heavenly places. And so now you are ruling and judging with Christ in his kingdom. And we'll talk about what that means in a moment. But can you see how, if you try to approach this from a premillennial perspective, and you try to translate this verse, you have a problem. Because if the Son of Man doesn't sit on his throne until sometime in the future, then you can't say that whatever Jesus is talking about happens in the regeneration, in the new birth. So you have to translate it differently, and that's why they put new world, even though that's not what it, the text actually says. Now when did Jesus take his throne? At the ascension. So what Jesus is talking about in this verse is a present reality now. Back in Revelation 20, John sees the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who didn't take the mark of the beast, but instead remained loyal to Jesus. Now, it's kind of curious that he doesn't just say martyrs, because he's used the word martyrs quite a bit through the book, but he specifically says beheaded. Think back over the ministry of Jesus and ask yourself, who was beheaded? Well, John the Baptist. That John was beheaded because of his witness, his testimony regarding Jesus. So why does the Apostle John, writing Revelation, single out John the Baptist here, apparently? I think it's because there's this key role that John the Baptist plays in the unfolding plan of God. John is a link between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. His main role is to introduce Jesus. So he's introducing the New Covenant, but at the same time, he's the last of the Old Testament prophets. He's before Jesus and pointing to Jesus. Let me just show you this briefly. 
Malachi wrote this, and this is uh, the second to last verse of the Old Testament. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. So the day of the Lord is coming, but Elijah the prophet is going to come and give a message before that. Well, then, when you get to the ministry of Jesus, Matthew 11, here's what Jesus says. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. Jesus is saying, when Malachi said, through Malachi's writing, God is saying, I'll send you Elijah. Jesus is saying, that's who John is. John is the fulfillment of that. John is the, the culmination of all of the Old Testament prophets. All the prophets in the law prophesied until John. He's the climax of the Old Testament message. So John has this continuity with the Old Testament prophets. Just like them, he's prophesying, he's pointing forward to Jesus. But that raises the question, were the other Old Testament prophets actually talking about Jesus? Let me give you a couple examples of what Jesus and Peter and Paul had to say about that. In John 5, Jesus says this, If you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. So, Jesus says that Moses was writing about him. Peter says much the same thing in Acts 10. To him, Jesus, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. All the prophets were bearing witness to Jesus. And Paul, in Romans, has this to say. Paul, servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his Son. All the prophets were speaking about the Son of God, Jesus. And a couple chapters later, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested, made known, apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. So the New Testament clearly teaches that the Old Testament prophets testified to Jesus. And the final Old Covenant prophet who testified to Jesus was John the Baptist, who was beheaded. So when John says that he saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus, I think he's using John the Baptist to be a representative of all of those Old Testament prophets, representing all of the Old Testament people even, who had testified to Jesus. And then John saw those who had not worshipped the beast or received its mark. As we saw earlier in the book, that's just all the faithful Christians during the tribulation leading up to A.D. 70 and beyond, even into this, into this present age. And if you put it all together, you say, well, who is it then that John sees judging and reigning with Christ during this age? Well, it's all the believers from the Old, old Covenant and the New Covenant. That's who he sees. And so then the question comes, well, if the Old Covenant faithful, the believers are raised in some sense, spiritually, and they're reigning with Christ, what about the unfaithful, the unbelievers, the pagans? 
So John's next phrase at the beginning of verse 5 explains the rest of the dead, the unbelievers, did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. In other words, at the final judgment. So there's no spiritual resurrection for them, only the physical resurrection at the final judgment. So when we put together the whole picture, the raising of, of Old Covenant and New Covenant believers spiritually to reign with Jesus during his kingdom, what do we call it? John says, verse 5, this is the first resurrection. You see, there will be a future physical resurrection of all men at the end of Jesus' kingdom. That's when the last enemy, death, is defeated, and some are raised to eternal life and some to eternal judgment. John, in his gospel, records Jesus saying it this way, An hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. And in Revelation 20, verse 6, John says, Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Well, how is it that you come to share in the first resurrection? Jesus is the one who was raised, and if we're in Christ, we share in what he's accomplished in the resurrection, and we do that by faith. So, when you believe in Jesus by faith, then you're raised to new life spiritually. We experience new birth, new life, raised with Christ. So we're blessed, because the blessings of Christ come to us by grace. And we're holy because we stand dressed in the righteousness of Christ. We share in his resurrection, so we're blessed and holy. And what else does John say about them in verse 6? The second death has no power over them. The second death is that eternal separation from God. Eternal torment and judgment in hell. Who escapes that? Those who have been raised with Christ. Those who have faith in him. Those who have new spiritual life. And John says, they will be priests of God and of Christ. They will reign with him for a thousand years. Now, as we've already said, Peter tells us that we are a royal priesthood. And you may remember the song that the 24 elders are singing in Revelation 5. Remember when Jesus, the Lamb, takes the scroll. He's the only one that can take it. And he opens it up to bring about the judgments. And the song that the elders are singing is, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Who is it that's reigning with Christ? All of those that he has ransomed by his blood. People, as we saw last week, from every tribe and language and people and nation. They're the ones who reign on the earth, reigning with Jesus during his kingdom. That's now. So can we boil this down to a main point that we see in these verses? Well, here's what I think it is. Christ's kingdom is present now and his people are ruling and reigning with him. Christ's kingdom is present now and his people are ruling and reigning with him. Now that may raise some more questions. So let me try to answer, I think, the two main questions that probably come up. First, 
how are all of Christ's people ruling and reigning if some are dead and some are alive on the earth now? And second, if we're ruling and reigning now, what does that look like? What does that consist in? What does that even mean? Okay, first question. How are all of Christ's people ruling and reigning now if some are dead and some are alive? Another way to ask that is, is Christ's kingdom taking place in heaven or on earth? And the answer, of course, is yes, both. We are seated with Christ in the heavenly places already. If you right now, here physically on earth, are a believer, then you have been raised with Christ and seated with him in the heavenly places. And that means, okay, the, the vision that we have here in Revelation of the church worshiping around the throne tells us the sphere of the church's activity includes both heaven and earth. Jesus said his kingdom is not of this world. That means its source, its origin, its power is not worldly power. It, its source is heavenly. Christ is extending his rule on earth, but that rule is exercised from heaven. Christ's kingdom is growing right now on the earth, and that's why Jesus teaches his disciples to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. How does Jesus' kingdom come on earth? Through his will being done on earth as it is in heaven. And that leads then to the second question. What does our ruling and reigning consist in? Or when Jesus' kingdom comes on earth as it is in heaven, what does that look like? On a personal level, it looks like his people obeying him. And on a societal or cultural or national level, it looks like his people obeying him. In other words, it looks like God's will being done on earth as it is in heaven. That's how his people rule and reign. As we grow in personal holiness, as we increasingly obey him outwardly, as we disciple the nations and they respond to his word in obedience, we're extending the rule and reign of Christ. His kingdom grows. In other words, it's just obedience to the great commission that he's given to us. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. Now pause there for a minute. The basis for this is what? Christ's authority, his kingship. Not just in heaven, but also on earth. Do you see what it says? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Every earthly power, every earthly ruler is under the kingship of Christ. Because all authority, all authority, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. Have you ever stopped to ask yourself what a discipled nation would look like? If a nation was following Jesus, what would change? 
the personal holiness of the people would change. But it would also have an outward effect. Their laws would change to align with God's laws. How do I know that? Look at the rest of what Jesus said in the Great Commission. I don't have it on the screen here, but baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. If they're baptized in the name of the triune God, they're identifying with him, they're submitting to him, that will have an outward effect. And what is the effect? They will observe all that Jesus has commanded. They'll obey. That's what it looks like. So a discipled nation will outwardly identify with Jesus and will obey him. And who will lead the nations to do this? Jesus' followers. That's what it means for them to rule and reign with him. Ruling and reigning with him means discipling the nations. This is a spiritual rule, but a spiritual rule that has real-world effects. It means faithfully living out the reality of God's will being done on earth as it is in heaven. When, when that's happening, then the nations will obey what Jesus has said. We're a long ways from that right now. But there's coming a day when that will happen. But it'll happen through God's people obeying him in personal holiness, sharing the good news of Jesus, more people whose hearts are changed, and when the hearts of a nation are changed, then the outward acts of that nation will change too. That's the reign of Christ. That's the millennium. That's our task. That's what we faithfully work toward, not by might, not by sword, not by military conquest, by the power of God's spirit, spiritual change, revival and reformation that leads to real world outward change seen in discipled nations, God's will being done on earth as it is in heaven. Because Christ's kingdom is present now, and his people are ruling and reigning with him. So, what use is this doctrine to us? And I want to give you just one word this morning. There are two aspects of it that I want to make us think about and make our own. But the one word is faithfulness. <coughs> faithfulness. And the two aspects of faithfulness, big picture and small scale. Okay? Big picture and small scale. Big picture first. If our task, which has been given to us by Jesus, is to disciple the nations, then we need to have that in mind each day. We're here to rule and reign, to spread the kingdom of Christ. We have work to do. So how does Jesus want you to do that? It's going to look very different for each of us. For some of you, the focus of that is your family. If you're a mom with young kids at home, raising those kids to be disciples of Jesus is one of the most important things you could possibly do. And I'm not just saying that. Don't underestimate it. Don't be discouraged thinking that God isn't using you for great things. Training your children is a great thing. If you have relationships with neighbors, maybe that's where God uses you to advance his kingdom. Maybe it's through relationships at work. Maybe it's through the actual work that you do. Maybe it's through something that you or your family spends time doing outside of work and home. Maybe it's through supporting a larger work 
that's involved in evangelism or culture or politics or law or some other area like that. There's no one-size-fits-all prescription for exactly how God wants you to faithfully advance his kingdom. But wherever he's put you, be faithful. Don't separate out your spiritual life from the rest of your life. It's all part of living and reigning in God's kingdom. The other aspect of faithfulness, then, is small scale. Faithfulness in daily life. Faithfulness in holiness. Faithfulness in reading God's word. Faithfulness in being here to participate in the worship that the church gathers to do. Faithfulness in the small acts that demonstrate the love of Christ. Faithfulness in fighting against temptation in your own mind and heart. The big picture faithfulness can sometimes be easier to see. We can see when someone becomes a believer, or when a biblically faithful law gets passed, or when some cultural institution makes a, a statement that upholds biblical ethics. And those are all good things, but the big picture faithfulness of a nation can never be maintained without the small-scale faithfulness on a personal level. See, the kingdom of God advances as his people more and more submit to his kingship. You and I still have rebel parts in us that don't always want to submit. Holiness is a battle. Faithfulness is constant hard work. And we'll never see a growing and healthy evangelical church out there without the small-scale faithfulness in the lives of its people. We'll never see a culture or a nation truly changed without the hearts of its people first being changed. That's where the battle is. Reformation and revival. So be faithful. In big things, but also in the little things. We rule and reign with Christ now by obeying his commission to go. To disciple, to baptize, to teach in our own homes and in whatever place God has put us. For his glory, for his kingdom. Let's pray. Lord, Sometimes an idea like this it just seems foreign to us. It seems like, what does that even mean that we're ruling and reigning right now with you? And yet, you've told us that your kingdom has begun, that you've raised us up, you've seated us with you in the heavenly places. We are, we're to be participating with you. And you've told us what it is that you want to see happen, that your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. And you've given us instructions to go, to disciple, to baptize, to teach. Help us to be people who are faithful. Faithful to that task, but empowered for that task by personal holiness and faithfulness in our own lives. May we see a change in our neighborhoods and communities and our state and our nation because we see a change in the hearts of a change that only your spirit can bring. A change that only the gospel can bring. 
May we be faithful to proclaim that good news of the kingdom of Jesus. And may you use us in some small way to grow the mustard plant a little bigger, to spread the leaven a little farther through the lump of dough. May we be kingdom-minded people. And may that result in faithfulness and holiness in our lives. We love you. You've been gracious to us. You're our Savior and our Redeemer. And we want to be faithful in following you. Enable us by your Spirit to do so. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.